Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. In the summer of 1966, as the Beatles set out on their third international tour, their entourage was the same small group they'd had since Liverpool. Mal Evans went back to the Karen Club days. He was a bouncer there, a big friendly bear of a guy, resourceful and fiercely protective of his boys. He was the second person ever hired by the Beatles, brought on to assist Neil Aspinall. Tony Barrow was a relative newcomer. He started in the summer of 63. Tony was a music columnist who gave the Beatles some of their first good press, and Brian Epstein rewarded him with a gig. He was quick-witted and funny, and the Beatles enjoyed his company. Mal and Neil drove, handled the bags and gear, stayed close by, and fulfilled whatever needs or whims the boys might have. Brian and Tony did the talking. When the Beatles were out on tour, they never went anywhere unaccompanied. At least one of these four guys was always in attendance. There were practical concerns, security first and foremost, but mostly John, Paul, George, and Ringo wanted it that way. They simply could not do all the things they had to do as Beatles without the constant presence and support of trusted helpers. It began to unravel the moment they touched down in Manila. On the afternoon of Sunday, July the 3rd, 1966, the Beatles deplaned to startling news. You're being put onto a boat. As the Beatles attempted to reclaim their briefcases, an armed guard waved them rudely away. Leave those bags there. Get in this car, he demanded, herding them toward a limo that had edged around the plane. That's Bob Spitz from his 2004 book, The Beatles, The Biography. In the back of the sedan, speeding through a foreign city, the four Beatles exchanged glances. They were terrified. For the first time ever in their touring career, they were alone with strangers heading God knows where, and anything, anything could happen. The boys were herded onto a small launch that took them to a yacht anchored in Manila Bay. The boat belonged to a local fat cat supporter of Ferdinand Marcos, the newly installed dictator of the Republic of the Philippines. It was stocked with food, booze, and a bevy of local prostitutes. The yacht owner figured he could yank them off the plane, shove them into his boat at gunpoint, and then, you know, party with the Beatles. A dozen heavily armed cops lined the deck. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. A couple hours went by. Finally, Brian Epstein came aboard. After some screaming, obscenity-laced phone calls, Brian got the boat to dock, and the boys were driven, at last, to the Manila Hotel. Weary from travel and from the bizarre ordeal that afternoon, the Beatles retreated to their rooms. 
The following morning, Paul McCarty and Neil Aspinall put on disguises and slipped out to sightsee and take some pictures. The other guys slept till early afternoon. But unbeknownst to the Beatles, that weird menacing party cruise the day before was just the opening act of the shit show in Manila. While Paul and Neil were sightseeing and the other guys were sleeping in, a maelstrom of events swirled around them, coalescing into a deadly serious international incident. Imelda Marcos, infamous clothes horse, beauty pageant runner-up, and trophy wife of His Excellency Ferdinand Marcos, wanted an exclusive meet-and-greet with the Beatles. The invite had come days earlier, while the group was in Tokyo. Afterwards, Brian claimed he did what he always did with such requests. He told his staff, politely but firmly, decline. Tony Barrow insisted there was no follow-up, that... Brian simply ignored the invitation. Whatever. First Lady Imelda Marcos either didn't get the word or if she did, she didn't care. Instead of canceling the event, she turned it into a luncheon at the Presidential Palace, nationally televised with hundreds of children in attendance. A front-page story in the middle of the Times that morning touted the gathering. A police escort came to take the Beatles from the hotel to the palace, but Brian stood his ground, out of the question. Even a request from the British Embassy didn't persuade him. The Beatles weren't going, and what's more, he wasn't going to wake up and ask them. Forget it. In fairness to Brian, he was honoring the wishes of his clients. On the first American tour, the Beatles had attended a reception at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. They were humiliated, treated like trained monkeys, they told Brian, in no uncertain terms, from now on, keep us out of things like that. So that morning, the entire country watched what looked like the Beatles snubbing the First Lady of the Philippines, leaving her rejected in the palace gardens, surrounded by crying, disappointed children. Later that same day, Monday, July 4th, 1966, the Beatles played two shows at the Rizal Memorial Stadium. Over 80,000 fans attended. Beatlemania transcended language and culture and politics. The crowds responded with the familiar blend of rapture and screaming craziness that greeted the Beatles everywhere. But as they left the gig that night, it was eerily quiet. Their police escort had been pulled, as if on cue an angry mob materialized and surrounded their two limos, rocking the cars and banging on the windows. Tony screamed at the driver to step on it and crash the gate. And back at the hotel, the staff ignored them. The elevators didn't work. No help with the bags, no room service. Early the next morning, July 5th, the newspaper headline screamed, Beatles spit in the eye of the First Lady. Tony realized the gravity of the situation. He found Neil and Mal and told them, We all need to get the hell out of here, now. They rousted the boys, grabbed what gear they could. The seven of them crammed into one car and made for the airport. After running a gauntlet of abuse from another angry mob at the terminal, Mal and Neil got roughed up clearing a path. They gratefully settled into the first-class cabin. Another unexplained delay. Then two stone-faced army officers came aboard the aircraft. They needed to see Tony Barrow and Mal Evans back at the customs office. A cold sense of dread settled over the cabin. Pale and 
Frightened, Mal shuffled up the aisle past George Harrison's seat, fighting off tears. Out of the sight of his mouth, the Beatles' tough guy bouncer told George, pass a message to my wife, tell Lil I love her. Thirty minutes went by. It felt like an eternity. Finally, to everyone's vast relief, Tony and Mal came back on board, and the plane took off. After a couple scotch and cokes, fright turned to anger, and the Beatles launched into a group diatribe. They all blamed Brian Epstein for the cock-up in Manila. George was sullen, Ringo was still rattled, John was caustic and scathing. Even diplomatic smooth-talking Paul McCartney was letting it rip. Seated just a couple rows in front of them, Brian heard all of it. He gripped the armrests, stared silently out the window, quivering with anger and humiliation. Finally, the conversation behind him turned, but the new topic brought him no peace of mind either. Uh, The gist of it? Who fucking needs this? We've bloody well had it with all this bloody touring. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want it, young man, and you got it. The hottest man in the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. Hey there, diggers. Welcome to episode 14 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Christian Swain here, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. Uh, Let's handle business real quick, and we'll jump right in. Hey, we've got a website, and everything you need is right there. Our podcast, show notes, social media links. By the way, we love to hear from you on social media, so come on, bring it. And may we kindly suggest you support the project with a monthly micro-donation through Patreon or with a one-time donation through PayPal. It's all happening at rockandrollarchaeology.com. Okay, that's it. Thank you. You rock, so let's get to it. Right now, this is episode 14. I'd love to turn you on.
want to tell you, the past is never dead. It's not even past. The American novelist William Faulkner wrote that in 1951. In 1967, the British rock band The Beatles released their eighth studio album on Parlophone Records, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It went straight to number one on the sales charts. In June of 2017, a remixed 50-year anniversary edition of Sgt. Pepper was released. As we put this podcast into production, it was the number one music download in the world. Sgt. Pepper came hot on the heels of two masterpieces, Rubber Soul in late 1965 and Revolver in August of 66. Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper. This triptych comprises the middle era of the Beatles, and it represents their peak of artistic and technical excellence. Sgt. Pepper capped it off, then, now, and forever. It represents the Beatles' peak moment of cultural impact. Nobody, not the Beatles, nor anybody else, has ever hit that peak again. Ah, rock and rollers that we are, we actually like the first two, especially Revolver, a little better. But... As a cultural artifact, Sgt. Pepper is simply unsurpassed. It's Mount Everest. It's the moon landing. It's pitching a perfect game in the World Series. Sgt. Pepper took rock music to a higher plane, created a whole new set of expectations about what a rock album is and what a rock band can do. So it's a big deal as far as that goes. The Beatles were imagining a type of popular music that didn't yet exist and that without their influence would not have come into being. Without it, there would have been no Pink Floyd, R.E.M., Radiohead, Talking Heads, or possibly even Cream or Led Zeppelin as we know them. There would be no Tommy by The Who, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, Tales from the Topographic Oceans by Yes, Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie, Horses by Patti Smith, or the Slim Shady LP by Eminem. That's a quote from Steve Turner's excellent book, Beatles 66, The Revolutionary Year. As for the cultural impact of Pepper, it's difficult to overstate. It was a huge cultural event at the time, yes, absolutely. Uh, But the influence has been pervasive and persistent. It is still very much with us. The past is never dead. It's not even past. In this case, Faulkner's quote is not merely a literary conceit. It is the real-world actual fact. Our friend Jeff Slate, music and culture writer for Esquire magazine, wrote some of the liner notes for the 2017 edition of Pepper. His notes are a great read and worth quoting at length. Speak to any American who was alive when Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was released, and they'll likely tell you some variation of the same story. That it was everywhere. Camp counselors played it in their cabins after lights out, with expectant preteen campgoers listening from just outside. Hiking college students and Peace Corps volunteers carried copies with them in their backpacks, hoping they'd meet up with someone like-minded enough, and who had a turntable handy, to share an evening listening session. Bands at all levels of the rock strata poured over every groove, at once overwhelmed by the bar that had been set while still hoping that some of Sgt. Pepper's genius would seep into their own work. Like Jeff, and like everyone else in the world, we have lots to say about Sgt. Pepper. We'll get there today, don't you worry. First, though, we want to set the stage a little bit. Talk some more about the year leading up to Sgt. Pepper. (laughs) 
In early 1966, Maureen Cleave, a features reporter for the London Evening Standard, wrote a five-piece series entitled, How Does a Beetle Live? The five articles on each of the Beatles and Brian Epstein ran sequentially for five weeks in the Friday edition. Maureen was friendly with the guys going back to the early days. Unlike many, uh, most of the journalists they encountered, she was sharp and funny and a strong writer. Maureen would not do pop pieces, but she was always fair and the Beatles liked and respected her for that. They rewarded her with wide access and lengthy interviews in which they spoke freely on a broad range of topics. The first piece, published on March 4th, 1966, featured John Lennon. John used some religious-sounding phrases in his song, The Word, a cut from the Beatles' current album, Rubber Soul. So Maureen drew him out a bit on that topic. John saw parallels between pop stars and messianic religious figures. It's an obvious take on fame. John Lennon is not the only rocker who's made this sort of observation. Pete Townsend wrote Tommy, and David Bowie wrote Ziggy Stardust. Those landmark albums were organized around this very idea. Indeed, the whole rock star as Messiah bid has been done so much that nowadays it's almost a trope, an overused cliché. John had been reading the Passover plot by Hugh Schoenfield, and it's clear this book informed his thinking. Schoenfield was a noted biblical scholar, one of the archaeologists and linguists who translated the Dead Sea Scrolls, a 20-year project that had just wrapped up in the mid-60s. Schoenfield's book, published in 1965, was a big seller, much talked about and hotly controversial. The Passover plot hypothesizes that Jesus was unique and remarkable, but not a divine being. Rather, he was a skilled preacher with a sizable following who sensed the messianic hunger among his people. Back to the Maureen Cleave interview. During his musings on messiahs and rock stars, John Lennon noted, correctly, that the Beatles were already more famous than Jesus. Uh, Taken in context, this was just a weary, jaded comment about the modern world and the bizarre nature of fame, not at all uh, put down on Christianity. The whole bit was a couple of paragraphs in a piece that stretched out for thousands of words. It made for good copy, but it didn't cause much of a stir in England at the time. That came later in America. Well, he's got him a house on the hill. Bill's made a statement in all the newspapers that they're getting more better than uh, Jesus himself. And the Ku Klux Klan, being a religious order, is going to come out here the night that they appear at the Colosseum here. And we're going to demonstrate with uh, different ways and tactics to stop this performance. The Klan is going to come out here because we're the only organization that will come out and make a stop to these accusations. This is nothing but blasphemy. And we're going to try to stop it. Any terror way we can, but it's going to stop. We're known as a terror organization. I think we have a terror organization. We have ways and means to stop this if uh, this is going to be the case. Yes. Well, what uh, what ways and means? Well, I don't want to say this, but uh, there'll be a lot of surprises uh, Monday night, I believe, when they get here. Right here, diggers. We pick up a discussion we've had before. Sociologists call it moral panic. We call it anti-rock. That audio is from the Beatles anthology who was picked off a news program in Atlanta during the 1966 American tour. 
The song is by Graham Parsons, and the guy talking is an honest-to-goodness, no-shit, drugstore, truck-driving man, the head of the Ku Klux Klan, and he's busy defending Jesus against them Beatles. Because the redeemer of humankind, the creator of the universe, needs a semi-literate yahoo in a white hood to stick up for him. It's easy to mock cretins like this, and we will, savagely, every chance we get. But as we said back in episode 11, anti-rock is not always funny. It's dishonest and hateful, and it can end up hurting people. Back to the Beatles. The backlash was in full force as the tour crossed America in August of 1966. Death threats, credible, serious death threats, came in every day. Radio stations throughout the South stopped playing Beatles songs, and preachers held record-burning parties. Ticket sales were off substantially. During the Memphis show, some knucklehead lit off firecrackers in the audience, and for a heart-stopping moment... The Beatles all thought they were being shot at. Worst of all, they still couldn't hear themselves playing sing at all. It was terribly frustrating. In Anthology, George said it was actually degrading their musical skills. How can you possibly get better when you can't hear what you're doing, he asked. (laughs) Good question. This was all just a month or so after the terrifying incident in Manila. Finally, mercifully, the end came. August 29th, 1966, the Beatles played their final paid concert at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. Hey, diggers. I am doing something akin to actual archaeology today, visiting the ruins of an ancient civilization. Okay, it's not exactly Indiana Jones, but here I am at the site of the old Candlestick Park in the Hunters Point neighborhood down in the southeast corner of San Francisco. The stick was demolished in 2015, and uh, truthfully, nobody misses it. It was a crappy stadium in a crappy location. I saw lots of events here over the years, concerts, ball games, and uh, take my word for it, friends, Candlestick Park sucked. Well, more accurately... Candlestick Park Blue. Now, there is often a brisk cool breeze blowing in San Francisco. Even in the summer, nights can get chilly. But Candlestick, oh, jeez. Candlestick was a whole other thing. The local geography and the design of the place turned it into a giant funnel for the sharp, chilly winds off the bay. Even by San Francisco standards, it was miserably cold and damp here in the evenings. The coldest stadium in America was not in Minnesota or Boston. No, it was right here in sunny California. 
As a consequence, the San Francisco Giants, who played here from 1962 to 2000, played more day games than any other baseball team except the Chicago Cubs. The San Francisco 49ers football team also played home games here from the early 70s all the way up till 2013. In 1961, a gust of wind blowing in from the outfield knocked the pitcher right off the mound in the middle of the All-Star game. True story. Okay, so now you've got a little of the backstory on this place. And now right here, this is where the Beatles 66 tour ended. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. A numb, shivering whimper forced out through clenched, chattering teeth. There are some photos from the concert, and a few minutes of black-and-white footage was aired on the local TV news. Barry Hood, a 15-year-old Beatles fan, captured most of the 32-minute show on a home movie camera. 48 years later, Sir Paul McCartney got in touch with Barry. Some of his footage was projected onto the screen at the beginning of Paul's show, the last concert ever held at Candlestick Park on August 20th, 2014. It was a kind and generous gesture from Paul McCartney to a longtime fan, but looking at the photos and at Barry Hood's film from 1966, really, the whole thing just looks dismal. The Beatles are birds in an ungilded cage on a little postage stamp of a temporary stage. They're surrounded by a 10-foot-high chain-link fence and situated way past second base. The nearest seat was 200 feet away. It was, as usual, cold, damp, and windy at the stick. Dust and debris blew across the empty field. Not that anyone, especially the Beatles, could hear a damn thing, but the show opened with John's version of Chuck Berry's rock and roll music, and Paul closed it out with his frantic Little Richard's imitation, belting out Long Tall Sally. Oh, baby, having some fun tonight. The boys were shoved into an armored car for transport to the airport, where they immediately hopped a flight back to Los Angeles. They spent about five hours total in San Francisco that day. Decades later, Paul remembered bouncing around in that steel box in the back of that truck and thinking, this is it, I've had it. On the plane back to L.A., George Harrison said to nobody and everybody, right, that's it, I'm not a Beatle anymore. They all were certain as could be about the decision to quit touring. But everything else including their future together as a band, was very much up in the air. Something else happened that August. Revolver was released worldwide. In the summer of 66, rock was in full flower on both sides of the Atlantic. The Who and the Stones had arrived. The London mod scene hit its peak. There was a great scene building in California. 
Motown, Atlantic, and Stack Soul on the radio. Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. The Beach Boys released Brian Wilson's masterpiece, Pet Sounds. Spurred on by the British invasion, American rockers had responded, and a renaissance was underway. In the Bay Area, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, and Jefferson Airplane. Down in L.A., Frank Zappa, The Doors, The Birds, and Buffalo Springfield. And back in New York City, The Velvet Underground. And just to name a few. All these artists started touring and putting out records in 66. Into the middle of all this, revolver drops. And the rock world just stops. Listen, gang, there's no Sgt. Pepper without Revolver. In a very real sense, Revolver was the first true Beatles album. It was conceived and created entirely in the recording studio. It was recorded in spring of 1966, before they headed out on tour. But they didn't even try to play any of the songs live. Their 11-song set was a handful of rubber soul cuts and lots of old chestnuts from the Fab Four days, which already seemed long ago and far away. Now, Revolver is a collection of songs, not a deliberate, long-form presentation like Sgt. Pepper, but it hangs together really well, and it's such an assured, confident work. Uh, Most important to our story... Making a pure studio album like Revolver gave the Beatles, especially Paul McCartney, a sense of the possibilities. There was life after touring. And you know what? It looked like it could be a pretty good life. By the time the Beatles got to writing and recording Revolver, all of them had dropped LSD. John George first, then Ringo in L.A. on the 65 tour. Paul got his ticket to ride in London at the end of 1965. We'll refer you to our ninth episode for a good long look at that topic. Right now, we'll just reiterate the main point of that show. LSD and powerful advances in music technology both kind of showed up at the same time. This time, 1965 and 66. And that mutual arrival produced, well, some mind-blowing results. We also talked about how LSD can be a powerful dose of nonconformity, something about it just helps a person see right through sham and hypocrisy and bullshit and ignore it, or laugh at it and then ignore it. So along with the LSD experience, something else, well, someone else entered the Beatles' orbit at the beginning of the Revolver sessions in early 1966, Jeff Emmerich. Jeff would probably chuckle at the characterization, but he was a dose of nonconformity his own self, willing to set aside the conventional wisdom and standard practices at EMI. Norman Smith engineered the first six Beatles albums. Jeff was usually, not always, his assistant. Norman and Jeff handled the tech stuff, which freed up George Martin to work to his strength, musical arranging, getting right in the room with the boys and working out the songs. Norman would bend the protocols at EMI, but he couldn't quite bring himself to disregard them completely. This was EMI. One did things a certain way at EMI, even if nobody really knew why. EMI, where one wore a lab coat over one's shirt and tie. EMI, where fussy conformity was never in short supply. Norman was ready to try it on his own as a producer, with an 
up-and-coming psychedelic outfit fresh off the London club scene. They went by the rather odd name of Pink Floyd. So George tapped EMI's resident whiz kid, Jeff Emmerich, barely 20 years of age, as Norman Smith's replacement. On the very first day of the Revolver Sessions, Jeff threw those almighty EMI protocols right out the bloody window. The results were spectacular. Again, we refer you to episode 9, The Medium, The Message, The Music. We talked at length about Tomorrow Never Knows and the different influences that went into it. It's one of the most important recordings in rock history. We said that then, and we still say that now. They started this song on Jeff's first day as the Beatles' chief engineer. John Lennon told George Martin he wanted his vocals to sound like the Dalai Lama chanting from a mountaintop. It was a typical request from John. He basically had zero understanding of the technical issues, so he would describe what he was looking for in poetic abstract terms. George Martin looked at Jeff and nodded. It would be his task to make John's abstraction into something practical. Jeff went to work heavily processing John Lennon's voice, and double-tracking, of course, and flanging, putting one of the two vocal tracks slightly out of sync with the other. Then he got one of the technicians to rewire a Leslie speaker cabinet, and he ran the vocals through that. Leslie's are odd contraptions, traditionally used in conjunction with a Hammond organ. They're still around, and a lot of keyboardists still use them, even in this digital age. They've got a variable-speed electric motor that rotates a baffle in front of the woofer, and that rotates the tweeter to get a thick, swirling sound. Martin and Emmerich put that effect on John's voice in the second verse, and it's weird and wonderful. We hear a lot of Leslie effects on Beatles records from here on out. Jeff had another insight. With all the layered instruments and signal processing, the bass and drums were bound to get lost. So he close-miked Paul McCartney's bass amp, stuck a microphone right up in the speaker cone, and he close-miked the drums, literally stuck microphones right inside Ringo Starr's drums, and set up overhead mics to capture the cymbals. All signals were heavily compressed, fed into the mixing desk, punched up further, and balanced. Then they were committed to tape. That's what jumps out at us when we listen to Revolver. It's the first Beatles album where we really hear the bass and drums, distinctly and as part of the larger whole. It was a big step forward, and the guys were thrilled with it. And of course, all these great ideas were big violations of EMI protocol. Had EMI's upper management known of these policy violations, there's a pretty good chance young Jeff Emmerich would have been sacked forthwith. 
But these deviations had the Beatles pounding the desk and howling with glee when they heard the playback. So EMI probably just looked the other way and hoped Jeff and the guys didn't break anything expensive. Company approved or not, Jeff's in-studio knack for the life hack and his willingness to experiment opened a lot of things up for the boys. Starting here with Revolver, each new studio effort by the Beatles and their production team writes a new chapter in the book of how to record a rock band. It was a good change, and it came at a good time for Jeff and for the Beatles. The musicologist Walter Everett sums it up well in volume two of his excellent book, The Beatles as Musicians. The greatest influence that Revolver was to have was its general emancipation from the Western pop norms of melody, harmony, uh, instrumentation, formal structure, rhythm, and engineering. This was the artistic freedom that was to allow the Beatles to turn to their imaginary alter egos to produce their 1967 masterpiece, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, emancipating the composers even from themselves. After that difficult final tour, for the first time ever, the Beatles took an extended break, six weeks, starting in October of 66. Paul and Mal Evans went on safari in Africa. Ringo sat in the garden with Maureen and played with their one-year-old son, Zach. George went to India to take sitar lessons from Ravi Shankar. John went off to Spain to act in Richard Lester's film, How I Won the War. The phone call came from Paul. The phone call always came from Paul. On November 24th, 1966, the guys all showed up at EMI's Abbey Road facility and started work on what would become Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Over 700 hours of studio time were logged on this project over the next five months or so. In later years, top-tier recording acts would spend more than 700 hours of studio time making albums. In some cases, it was worth it. More often, it was not. But here in 1966, this kind of investment of time and money was unprecedented. George Martin spent a lot of time on the phone reassuring the bean counters at EMI. Strawberry Fields Forever was first up. John wrote it during his off hours while he was filming in Spain. Bob Spitz takes up the story. John, who appeared spidery and gaunt, wasted no time previewing his song for George Martin on an acoustic guitar. This version of it, sung so haltingly and in a voice barely above a hush, was dramatic indeed in the stillness of the studio. So was John's determination to convey what he felt to honor the starry images of his Wilton childhood. Martin listened, sitting erect, arms folded across his chest, legs crossed, as impassively as possible. But his ears burned with excitement. They would set it aside and come back to it several times over the next month, 
about 50 hours of studio time ultimately went into this magnificent four-minute creation. The final mix is actually a blend of two very different takes, recorded at different times, in different keys, at different speeds. It was John's idea to splice them together. As usual, he had no clue as to the technical challenges. In today's world of digital recording, this could be accomplished with a couple of mouse clicks. In 1966, Jeff Emmerich, working with two analog tape machines, good ears and a deft hand with a razor blade, was somehow able to pull it off. The edit occurs at almost exactly 60 seconds in, according to Jeff. George Martin brought in some extra effects and instrumentation to help cover up the edit. But if you listen carefully, you can spot it. It comes right when John sings the word to in Cause I'm Going To Strawberry Fields. Let me take you down cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Inspired in large part by what he heard from John, Paul McCartney wrote his own nostalgic tribute to Liverpool, Penny Lane. Penny Lane was the bus stop where John and Paul would often meet on their way to gigs and practice, back in the days when they were still the quarrymen. Bob Spitz, once again. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs Of every head he's had the pleasure to know And all the people that come and go Stop and say hello Penny Lane is beautifully structured, saturated in rhythmic cadences, rambling like a number 16 bus to the tram sheds. Paul narrates the action with bluff familiarity, becoming someone who has committed a childhood scene to memory and yearns to share it with a visitor as a way, perhaps, of making it come alive again. Musically, Penny Lane is a pretty advanced composition. Uh, Listen to the key changes towards the end, where Paul's voice just soars, and then soars again in the even higher key, not once, but twice. And of course, there's that wonderful piccolo trumpet solo, played by David Mason of the London Philharmonic. So, after six weeks of sessions, they only had a pair of songs, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. But what a pair of songs. Brilliant, startling, and original. Game-changing. These two were intended for Sgt. Pepper, but the suits at EMI wanted some Beatles product to sell. Now. So, George Martin reluctantly turned over the masters for Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. They were left off of Sgt. Pepper and released instead as a double A-side single in February of 1967. In later years, George Martin would call this the biggest mistake he made during his years producing the Beatles. Now, we're sensitive to the pressures George Martin dealt with every day. With one hand, he had managed his brilliant but unruly young charges in the studio, With the other, he fended off the suits and bean counters at EMI. But he's right. 
It was a bad decision, a giant blunder. Take out, say, when I'm 64 and she's leaving home and substitute Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. And Sergeant Pepper goes from masterpiece to, I don't know, the single greatest thing in the history of the universe or something. It's kind of fun and pretty awe-inspiring to think about that. Anyhow, our point is, these two songs should have been on Pepper. What if they had? Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Let's move on. So, even before 1967 begins, the guys are deep into the work. The whole Sgt. Pepper concept, the idea of using a pseudonym constructed an alter ego, that came from Paul. It's a recurring thing with Paul McCartney. Clearly, the guy's in love with this idea. Magical Mystery Tour the following year. As a solo artist in the 70s, Paul took his new band Wings on an incognito tour of small British towns. That's what inspired Band on the Run. On the road with the Beatles, he would often put on disguises and sneak out with Mal or Neil and just be another tourist for a few hours. It didn't always work, but that didn't stop him from trying. During the fall 66 break, he traveled incognito with faithful Mal Evans by his side. For weeks, he rambled around Africa and Europe unrecognized, like a regular bloke on holiday. The experience was glorious, liberating. On the plane back to London, Mal asked Paul what the S&P stood for on the little pots accompanying their in-flight meal. Salt and pepper, Paul responded with a chuckle. Right, right, salt and pepper. Mal's thick Liverpool accent made it sound like Sergeant Pepper. The phrase stuck and the idea took shape. The Beatles would assume a new identity and put together a series of songs by Sergeant Pepper and the band. That would be the new show. Let the album go out on tour, was how Paul put it. The other three weren't quite as enthusiastic, but they did like the idea of stepping away from the pressures and expectations of being a Beatle, even if it was just metaphorically. So they went along. By February of 67, about halfway through the Pepper Sessions, Paul had the introduction song written. On the 5th of that month, the boys went to Abbey Road and laid down the basic tracks. idea, really, but that's the beauty of it. You can pretty much write whatever, slide it between these two bookends, and it'll fit. Rock and roll, circus songs, music hall, Rudy tooting nostalgia, and sentimental ditties. Commercial jingles, the one and only Billy Shears. Sit back and let the evening go. George Martin added some crowd noise and some orchestral players tuning up as a fade-in 
and brought the crowd noise in and out during the song to imitate a live performance. On the master copy of the album, Martin and Emmerich crossfaded the songs, one right into the other, without the standard three seconds of silence. More than anything else, in those middle years, George Martin worked with the guys on intros and outros to the songs. Start with something memorable and end with something even more memorable. The crossfades and all those great intros and outros that George pushed for, that combination is a big part of the Sgt. Pepper magic. In April, at Neil Aspinall's suggestion, they recorded a second version of the song Sgt. Pepper, a reprise. It ended up being one of the toughest-sounding, hardest-rocking songs the Beatles ever recorded. Let's blast a little bit of it right here. Just like that quick count. One, two, three, four. The beginning of I Saw Her Standing There, way back on their first album. Paul's countdown is full of promise. Something big is about to arrive. Something really big, as we shall discuss in just a bit. The song itself is straight ahead, nothing fancy. John and George playing electric guitar, Paul on bass, and Ringo on drums. Paul overdubbed some keyboards later, but that's about it. One take, smash mouth rock and roll. But this time the drums are close-miked, the guitars have a tough, snarling sound, and Paul brings the thunder with his new Rickenbacker bass. If you'd been fortunate enough to catch the 1967 Beatles playing the Cavern Club in Liverpool or the Marquis in Soho, this is probably what it would sound like. So, the first time through, we get introduced to the one and only Billy Shears. On every album, John and Paul would write a tune for Ringo to sing. With a little help from my friends, was mostly put together by Paul. Our favorite story about this song, at the conclusion of a long all-night session, Ringo cut the vocal track. Ringo was self-conscious about singing, and the high note at the end was giving him fits. The other three guys gathered around him as he stepped up to the vocal mic. They rubbed his shoulders, gave him the pep talk like he was a boxer heading into the ring. As he sang, they grinned and goofed, silently encouraging him. When he nailed the ending, they all broke into cheer and applause. In his memoir, Jeff Emmerich called it a rare and touching moment of Beatles solidarity. There were lots of those moments in the early days, but by 1967, they were getting harder and harder to come by. Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly A girl with kaleidoscope eyes One morning on his kitchen table 
John spotted a pastel drawing by four-year-old Julian Lennon. John asked his boy what it was. It's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, young Julian responded. Lucy was one of Julian's chums at the nursery school he attended. He repeated the phrase to Paul. Wow, what a great tagline for a chorus, Paul replied. The song is obviously psychedelic in tone and content, but the LSD acronym contained in the title really is just an interesting coincidence. When a journalist brought it up a few months later, John was as surprised as anybody about it. There's a lot to say about this song, and we will refer you to the show notes. There's tons of great stuff about all the songs on Sgt. Pepper. We recommend Bob Spitz's and Walter Everett's respective books, and Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head, the Beatles in the 1960s. Everett's discussion about the engineering and sound design on John's vocal track, we especially recommend that if you want to dig deeper. Right now, we want to explore how the juxtaposition of verse and chorus in Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds tells a story about John and Paul. The verse is in 3-4 time, a slow waltz. The melody is essentially one note, sung counterpoint to sad, dreamy keyboard arpeggios. John recites the beautiful Lewis Carroll-inspired imagery with a detached, world-weary sigh his voice drenched with studio effects. At the end of the story, the girl with the kaleidoscope eyes turns out to be not just a dream, but suddenly someone who's there at the turnstile. When the chorus comes, the time signature goes to a rocked-out 4-4, and the tonality shifts to a major key. Paul sings out the tagline full-throated, joyful, and uninhibited. The contrast is beautiful and thrilling, and it's also very telling. John Lennon was a mess during this period. He was taking LSD daily, and while LSD is benign compared to other drugs, tripping constantly was taking its toll. In photos taken during the Sgt. Pepper sessions, John looked skinny and gaunt from not eating and sleeping, hollow-eyed and emotionally checked out. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in And stops my mind from wandering Where it will go I'm filling the cracks that ran through the door And kept my mind from the shitstorm of bad publicity in America over the more popular than Jesus remark still bothered the hell out of him. Brian Epstein, George Martin, and the suits at EMI might have tried to hide it, but they were angry. His bandmates, especially George Harrison, hid nothing from him. They were tired of hearing about it, tired of sticking up for him, and they let him know it. All his life, he had felt abandoned and misunderstood, uh, but this time was the topper. A line from Starberry Fields Forever, Misunderstanding all you see, it's getting harder to be someone. A sigh of resignation, aching sadness, and unsatisfied yearning. John's lead vocal throughout Pepper are drenched with pathos. On some songs, like Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite and Good Morning, Good Morning, the weary, resigned tones leads to funny, satirical bite, uh, tongue-in-cheek, very British. 
on the more meditative numbers like Strawberry Fields. It's just haunting, beautifully sad, lonely, and lovely all at the same time. Back home, his marriage to his first wife, Cynthia, was crumbling. John was largely an absentee father to Julian, and he felt toxic shame over that as well. I was going through murder, he said a few years later in a Rolling Stones interview. And the kicker, the worst part, while John was going through emotional murder, Paul McCartney was energized, ebullient, brimming with confidence and overflowing with ideas. He was writing chipper, cheerful tunes about lovely Rita and things getting better. John's sardonic falsetto response, can't get no worse. They were powerhouse songs, but John Lennon only contributed three tunes to Pepper, four if we include Strawberry Fields. The fifth one was pretty much a 50-50 collaboration with Paul. It's a blowout, a masterpiece, and we will talk about it real soon. Stay right here with us, almost there. For the first time on a Beatles album, the majority of songs were primarily written by Paul McCartney. Pepper is the watershed where Paul McCartney ascends to leadership of the Beatles. Paul clearly wanted it more, and John was too depressed and checked out to make a contest of it anyway. Harrison took some big steps forward on Rubber Soul and Revolver. If I Needed Someone was jangly and catchy with sweet vocal harmonies, like something the birds might have done out of L.A. The song had a featured spot in the set on the Beatles 66 tour, a first for George. Revolver opened with Taxman, one of George's best songs as a Beatle, with nasty guitars and biting lyrics. He had three songs on that album, a first as well. Getting the side one track one spot was yet another first for him. There's only one George Harrison song on Sgt. Pepper, but it's splendid, and it's in a featured spot, the opening of side two. It started out unpromising. John and Paul were not impressed when they heard the early working versions of Within You and Without You. It took some George Martin magic to get it there. George Martin didn't find Indian music all that interesting at first, but mashing up a Western-style string section with the Indian instruments, that was an intriguing idea, so he went to work. We don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but Indian music and the instruments used to make it, well, Indian music has a different scale than Western music, very different. George Martin had to painstakingly chart out the swoops and bends and microtones so the Western-trained string players could pull it off. The end result is a notable advance in recorded music, an East-meets-West milestone. 
all you musicologist types. We refer you again to Walter Everett's book for a lot of good detail. thing that amazes us about the Beatles. Well, there are a lot of things that amaze us about the Beatles, but the big one, the way they would raise the bar and then raise it again, over and over. Each new record broke new ground, started new conversations about what rock music is and what a rock band can do. There's this push and pull between art and commerce, and commerce usually wins. We've talked about this before, especially in our fourth episode, The Change of the Guard. Most of us mere mortals have to walk a certain line between raw creativity and putting out something that might actually sell. But the Beatles always seem unbothered by this push and pull, unaffected. They saw no conflict between art and commerce. They would do both, and do both really well, sell big without selling out. It speaks to a certain audacity, to unshakable confidence. To us, that's what defines the Beatles. Made in a total of around 34 hours, a day in the life represents the peak of the Beatles' achievement. With one of their most controlled and convincing lyrics, its musical expression is breathtaking, its structure at once utterly original and completely natural. The performance is likewise outstanding. Lennon's floating tape-echoed vocals contrast ideally with McCartney's dry briskness. A brilliant production by Martin's team, working under restrictions which would floor most of today's studios, completes a piece which remains among the most penetrating and innovative artistic reflections of its era. That's from Ian MacDonald's book, Revolution in the Head. Here's a quote from a writer we especially like, Nicholas Davidoff, from the June 2017 issue of The Atlantic. If a day in the life is about anything, it speaks to the way the daily unfolding of worldly events touches the private fragilities of ordinary people. It's Ulysses in a pop song, the typical day made unforgettable. I can't think of a popular song that references more different forms of art. Photography, film, literature, architecture. In that respect, A Day in the Life is autobiography as interior still life. A person selecting representative images to show you how he experiences the world. Here's what we love most about A Day in the Life. The tag. The turnaround phrase. I'd love to turn you on. The phrase was Paul's, but John really liked it. John loved puns and riddles and ambiguous wordplay. He was 
always on the lookout for lines that were open to many interpretations that meant everything and meant nothing at the same time. At the time, it was deemed by many as an invitation to take drugs. The BBC banned a day in the life from UK radio for that reason. In several countries, the only version of Sgt. Pepper's sold in record stores had a day in the life excised, taken out. Yes, the phrase has obvious drug connotations. It has sexual connotations. It has all kinds of connotations. Uh, But to us, just about every time we've ever heard it, or said it, it's in reference to music. I'd love to turn you on to this band, or that album, or this song that I really like. And the evidence suggests, while they love the ambiguity and layered meanings, that was how the Beatles heard it too. When Paul said it to John, the context was, hey, let me play you this song, or this bit. I really like this, and I think you will too. It was about sharing music. I'd love to turn you on. It says something else, too. Something wonderful. It says, it makes me happy to make you happy. It's a kind of loving expression. And there, in the early summer of 1967, it set a certain tone. That summer has become known as the Summer of Love. And we're going to talk about it and about what came next in our next couple of episodes. Please come on back. But for now, we'll just say, we're sorry, but it's time to go. But know this, we love to turn you on. We love to tell you stories about our favorite music, about the people who make it, about the time it inhabits. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thanks for listening, and come on back for episode 15. Bye for now. the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help.
The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson from Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.